to give everybody out there listening a very warm White Cat welcome because you're tuned in to the White Cat Outdoors podcast. What's going on, guys? Episode 31 of the White Cat Outdoors podcast. Thanks for joining us. Nick's here. Hey, what's going on, everybody? And Tom is joining us with a super fresh haircut. I'm back, baby. Yeah, he's looking good. Real good. Tom, you do look sharp. Thanks. Yeah, um, and we are about to have another guest on here with us in a second. We're going to get him on the horn. Uh, his name is John Royer from Leatherwood Outdoors, and we're pretty pumped to have him on. He's a real, really interesting guy. He's from Pennsylvania, does a lot of rattlesnake hunting, which is conveniently what we're talking about today. So we're real excited about that. When we were getting into snake hunting, we watched a lot of his videos on YouTube to kind of get us pointed in the right direction. And that he's actually, his he has a video about skinning rattlesnakes. And my dad followed that video to skin and tan his snake. So pretty informative guy, real interesting guy. So we're real excited to have him on. So let's see if we can't get him on the phone here. Hey, how's it going, John? Pretty good. How are you guys? Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So before we get too involved here, um, let's uh, just kind of introduce yourself um, and let all of our listeners know uh, where they can find you on social media so they can see some of your content. Well, uh, my name is John Royer, and I am from Clarion County, and I own a YouTube channel uh, called Leatherwood Outdoors. Um, and there's a bunch of uh, friends and family that are uh, contributors and that you also see in the videos. Uh, we also have a second channel, Leatherwood Outdoors 2. And you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook. All Leatherwood Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram as well? Yep. And is there, uh, what's I guess the difference in content between Leatherwood Outdoors and Leatherwood Outdoors 2? Well, at much? the time when YouTube had its creators becoming really popular, they were putting out so much content that let's say you posted something that what it, you wanted to post it, but it wasn't true to the original uh, format of your channel, but people wanted to see extra content. And so a lot of YouTubers were creating second channels. And they, it wasn't necessarily bad footage, it was just extra footage. So we thought, you know, originally it was just videotaper hunting and then it was like people were like you know we want to see what you guys do for a cooking recipe or something like um you know maybe a how to gut a deer type of video and so we started making those videos and putting them on to the second channel plus we had a lot of footage that just didn't make any sense just to stick it into a video somewhere because it would have no context so we would save up all the extra footage throughout the seasons and make it one video and we would put it there and so there's a lot of extra stuff there i also have a lot more uh beekeeping and cooking how-to type videos on that channel whereas the main channel that we started with that's where all the uh the good hunts and the good educational videos such as you know big mushroom hunting videos uh the things that uh, what really got us started is, and what we stay true to goes on that channel. Good. So you kind of, you dip into all of it, which is nice, which is, uh, why Frank originally reached out to you. Cause we're, we, I guess realized when we were starting our podcast, um, that, you know, there's a lot of podcasts that, you know, they strictly go after bow hunting or Western hunting or fishing. Um, and we 
felt that there wasn't a lot of podcasts out there that seemed to wrap everything up. So, you know, we follow the season where, you know, right now people are snake hunting. Um, and we, yeah. you were our inspiration a lot of ways um, before we even met you or talked to you on the phone um, about um, snake hunting. So it just, we, you know, we did turkey hunting in the spring and then we'll talk deer hunting in the fall along with some Alaskan stuff. Um, but so we yeah. felt that what you what you're doing on your YouTube channel, um, we really liked it because it, like I said, it was a lot of inspiration for us. So yeah, that's great to hear. So how long ago did you get started with Leatherwood? Like your YouTube channel? Did it start? Did it start on YouTube? Um, I'd say the the inspiration started when I was a little kid. Uh, my dad always brought the video camera wherever we went, and. There's actually some videos uh, way back in the archives of Leatherwood Outdoors. I think it's the earliest video you'll see of me. We are actually on the Red Bank Creek uh, floating. I'm thinking five or six years old. And wow. a bear's crossing the river in front of us as we're floating down fishing. And my dad's like, look at the bear. And you can hear me going, give me the camera. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just naturally for me to always want to be behind the camera. And so... That progressed into my dad uh, filming me when I was 12, shoot my first deer, and then always having that around when I was going out on my own. It was just natural for me to have a camera with me, not to necessarily film a hunt, but just film whatever I saw so that I can come back because, you know, you're in a deer stand or you see something, or you see a bear or a big buck out there 100 yards, you're never going to shoot it. At least you have the camera to videotape it to bring it back to show everybody and that's how it started and then once um uh got out of high school and uh youtube was becoming popular buddy of mine said hey let's you know let's try to get a let's try to copy the guys on tv and try to make our own doe hunt and we did that uh started created the youtube channel and just you know just film whatever we could to put on there and some other friends from high school, um, they said, hey, we're kind of doing the same thing. We don't know how to edit. We don't have anybody to edit or anything. Um, you know, I said, hey, we're, we're all from the same area. Uh, we all know each other. I said, why don't you bring your footage to me, and I'll edit it, throw it up on the channel. And, you know, and it just came to be. There's no set number of people in Leatherwood Outdoors. So it's pretty much the way it was is if you want to film and – put your, you know, hunt on there, then you got to film it. You know, if you don't want to film and you don't want to mess with the camera anymore, that's fine with me. There's no ins or outs. It's just a bunch of friends and family that like to film and, you know, put your videos out, and nobody was obligated to film the whole time. So, But it's just so ingrained in me, I can't even hunt anymore unless I have a video camera with me. Sounds like it's pretty unique. Uh, more of it sounds almost like a community uh, that you've formed with Leatherwood Outdoors. Like you said, there's no, you know, hounding people that they got to get footage or whatever. It's just when people want to film and sounds like share the same passion you do for catching things on camera. Um, you just, you know, help them out, get it edited and up on YouTube. Right. We, we really didn't try to um, make ourselves known. It just sort of spread through word of mouth. Um, I think one of the main things is what we did was we eliminated, because it was because we were trying to copy at first the people on TV, we realized how scripted the TV shows are mm -hmm. uh, for hunting. And that really actually turned us off, at least for me, 
from even watching any hunting on TV. Um, I haven't watched hardly any hunting on TV for almost 10 years. I don't even know what's new out there. I don't know the shows that are out there. Anything that I'm watching, I get off of YouTube, and I'm busy enough editing and watching and answering questions with my own channel. I don't even have that much time to watch anything else. And so that's where... It was just diversity was another thing. You know, we we just go out there and we are doing the same thing that the average Pennsylvania hunter can do. Um, we're not better than anybody else. There's guys that shoot bigger bucks, more bucks, find bigger snakes, uh, catch bigger fish than all of us. It's just that we bring the camera along and we're not adding sound effects. We're not uh, nothing scripted and we're not adding music. And those were some things that we wanted to leave out. We wanted to it to actually seemed like a home movie. And as we edited and, you know, made more and more videos over time, our editing got better, and we still try to stay true to that original format of just keeping it just as if we're making a home video to share with friends and family. And we were able to now that it's digitalized, because when we first started, I was filmed with the VHS cameras on my shoulder. And then it went to the, you know, the mini DVDs, the mini DVs, the high eight cassettes, and when digital come out, it was a game changer because now instead of taking a camera to somebody's house and plugging it into their TV to show them what you videotape, now you can just throw it on YouTube, send an email, and they can watch it. Yeah, exactly. So it was all about sharing memories. Um, it wasn't about trying to get popular and trying to be better than the next YouTube channel and trying to get subscribers. Um, it was just, it just grew through word of mouth. Uh, and so that's how, that's how it happened. Yeah. You were just doing it because you loved being in the outdoors and wanted to share that passion with everybody else. And it's really caught on. Yep. So, yeah, Pretty we, much. Uh, um, when we first last year around probably about February of last year, uh, Frank had approached me about, you know, getting into snake hunting because well, I didn't, I honestly, I, I went to school down in Williamsport area. Um, and did quite a bit of hiking down that way. Um, and I had only encountered, I think, two or three rattlesnakes the entire time I was down there hiking. Um, so I knew that they were in the area. Um, but I never really, I didn't under, I didn't realize you could hunt them, to be honest. Um, and then, you know, I was a couple of years out of school and Frank had mentioned uh, going out and hunting rattlesnakes. So we pretty much like we went to YouTube um, to try and figure out, you know, kind of looking at like what equipment we needed. Um and try and look at like terrain features in the videos. And that's where we stumbled across uh, your page was um, just looking to do rattlesnake hunting. And it was, you're one of the only ones that are putting out good footage that I saw on YouTube. Especially um, for PA rattlesnakes. Yeah. It's, well, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff yeah, for like out yeah, West, yeah, but you're different. Yeah. yeah. You guys are extremely unique in that aspect. Um, there's just, there's not a lot of content on PA rattlesnakes at all. Um, so it was neat to see, we had we had some uh, guidance before we walked out there blind for sure. Yeah, 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 and that's that's the thing with the the videos that I've been making on the rattlesnakes recently, especially these past four or five years, is more of a educational uh, direction towards the snake hunting um, because there's been a lot of changes and the the. The sport is growing at an extremely fast rate, and so you get a lot of people out there, 
And so I want people to be able to at least see what I'm doing because that might be the only thing they know because it's very hard to find experienced snake hunters because there really wasn't a whole lot of them in the state before it got real, real popular. How long have you been rattlesnake hunting? I know you said you know you grew up in the outdoors with your dad and stuff. Have you always been into snake hunting? Was that something that came from your dad, or did you catch on to that later on in life? Well, that came on uh, later on. Um, now, I was always up in that area. It seemed like my dad, we would go up into the Benazette, Cinema Honing, Kettle Creek, uh, all that area up there since it seemed like every weekend when I was a kid. Uh, so I knew all those places, and I had never, ever seen a rattle. I remember thinking I'd seen one rattlesnake hitting the road up there. Mm-hmm. And it still, as I got older, never dawned on me that we had, like, had rattlesnakes in Pennsylvania because where I live, there's, you know, no, you got to drive at least a half hour to get even close enough to find a rattlesnake. That's how it and, is around where we live. Like, when people hear us talking about rattlesnake hunting, they're like, well, how far do you have to travel for that? Like, what state are you doing yeah. this in? It's like, no, we're doing it not that far from home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that, and that's where uh, I was actually with a, a good friend of mine, Justin, and we were with his uncle, and we were coming down off of one of the hilltops up there, and my buddy Justin was looking in the, he's just looking out the window into the ditch as we we're coming down off the mountain, and he goes, stop, and he's a big uh, snake guy, he, he likes catching snakes and, uh, and you know, creepy crawler stuff, and he goes, there's two rattlesnakes in the ditch, and I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, he goes, no, so we jumped out, and they start buzzing, one was the yellow phase, one was the black phase, and they just went in this culvert pipe, and that was it, so uh, his uncle's like, you know, uh, well, you know, you there's a way you can hunt those. You have to get a venomous snake permit, and you're allowed to kill one a year. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> you know, I'm like, why did I not ever hear about this or know about this? Mm-hmm. And we're both looking at each other like, that sounds like an awesome idea. Yeah. So uh, we got, you know, some snake-proof boots and chaps and stuff, and we had no idea what we were doing other than just a little bit of information of find some rocky places that's remote, uh, where there's some woods, some rocks, some sun, some shade, and give it a try. Mm-hmm. And that's how it happened. <laughs> so you had mentioned earlier like um, that huge spike um, in the sport of rattlesnake hunting. Um, do you have any theories on like why maybe it's um, gotten more popular? Because like, I always wondered if it was because um, like the permits became more accessible, if you will. Like, you can, they're over-the-counter now. Like, I didn't know if you had any theories. Like, because you've been doing it for so long, like, what changed, I guess? Well, I noticed first when, and I'm not trying to, to brag or anything, but I literally noticed when I started putting out videos every year. And it was about the fourth or fifth year that I put videos out. Every single person that I have ever met snake hunting knew who I was <laughs> and told me they basically got into it because of me and you know, in the videos that we put out. Well, you just added three more to the list this evening because I've, <laughs> I've already said it without you even <laughs> informing us of that. So, um, now, I would say recently there has been a recent spike um, added on to that with the over-counter license. Yeah. Um because originally no one knew about it. You, you, you had to search 
on the internet. You had to look for papers. You had to print stuff out. You had to send it. It was it was a more difficult thing. And um, I never told anybody how to do it or anything. It was just the fact that when I was putting out videos, people were like, "Wait a minute, you can rattlesnake," and then they looked into their own and saw what they had to do. And because it was only shortly after I started putting out videos that um, they started with the um, with the uh, measurements and regulations. Oh, because when I first started hunting, there was no regulations. Really? Um, a rattlesnake was a rattlesnake no matter what length or size, male or female. You didn't even have to tube it. Hmm. It was just you pick up a snake and you could keep it. So how long ago did they start with having to sex it and get the measurement on it? I'm thinking it was either 2000 and it might have been 2008. Okay. So you've been doing remember. this a lot longer than I realized, actually. And so... I think my first video, because YouTube really didn't, YouTube, I think, come out around that time. It was around that time that more people, because I think our first video was uploaded in 2009. Mm -hmm. So my first snake hunt video was filmed before 2009, because we didn't even start the channel till then, but we already had footage of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking because it's been it's I'm talking 15 years ago or so. <laughs> I'm trying to give flashbacks exactly how the timeline was, but it was somewhere around there. It was shortly after we started hunting that uh, the tubing requirements, you know, to count the scales, and um, you know, with the fluorescent light tube guard, I I was also hearing a lot of people saying, you know, I saw the guys at the snake hunts using those. The tube, the snakes, but they were like glass and they were heavy. Hey, so I, let me. Can I interrupt you for a second? What are you talking about? Because I'm not even sure what you're referring to with the fluorescent the tubes. What are you? What are you the using for your? Oh, just a regular snake. Okay, tube. you had okay. said something about fluorescent, and I thought there was maybe like an attachment you were putting on your tube. Oh no, no, they're fluorescent light tube guards. Oh, okay, that's a, yeah. okay. That's what you're using. Okay, we we've, yeah. we've been using uh, like fishing pole sleeves, like you'd find like when you buy a pole at any. You know, fishing oh, yeah, store. Yeah. Um, we found it was a similar diameter to what we were researching people were using. Um, but, okay, so you're using a fluorescent light uh, cover. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And they're like they're like three bucks at Lowe's, and they come extremely long, you know, as long as the fluorescent light tubes are. And, mm -hmm. then, and then you can cut them whatever length you, you want. Okay. And yeah. so when you when said fluorescent that, light, I got all I kinds of emails. What kind of tube are you using? You know, it's like it's not a snake tube; it's a light guard. <laughs> well, I I noticed you could. I mean, you go online. You there's people selling like snake tubes that were. I mean, I thought were extremely expensive. I mean, you could buy like the kits where you could buy like anywhere from like inch and a half up to two and a half inches and quarter inch increments, and it was like they wanted almost a hundred bucks for a kit, and. And that's why we went to the fishing pole sleeves because it was just way more affordable. Yeah, yep. I mean, it, and if something ever happens or whatever, um, like I said, I, I got mine at a small hardware store and I just happened to look at it and I, I'm like, huh, I'm going to take this with me because I'm like, I got to tube this. And they don't give you really any specific specifications early on about, you know, what kind of tube or where you get them or anything like that. And it was just the right size. I mean, 
you're not going to be, you shouldn't be handling anything super small that you know is like only a, like a foot and a half long anyways, because, you know, that's almost too small for the tube. But the biggest of big snakes will fit in those light tube guards. And they might not go up in a whole long, long way, but all you need is, you know, just a few inches of their head up there. And if you can grab a hold of them, that's all you need. Yeah, and as, so, as long as you get the business end in there, then you're safe. Right. <laughs> And what what's great about those is you can cut them to length, whatever length that you are comfortable with. So I know guys that are using them very, very short, and I know guys that they want them the whole length um, just so that, I don't know, but, I mean, they are pretty long. So I just cut them not any specific length, just whatever I feel comfortable sticking in my backpack and mm-hmm. nothing that sticks up too long that gets caught on branches and stuff because I have – I have lost them before and had to walk a half mile back in the middle of nowhere to figure out where my tube went. Because if you don't have your tube, it's yeah, we've crazy. been there hard before. Scales in the back end. So yeah, you're gonna have a lot of so, fun trying to figure out if it's a legal one or not. Yep. Definitely have to be a little bit more careful if you lose your tube. <laughs> yep. So you, I mean, obviously, like you said, you, I didn't realize you've been doing this this long. Um, and one of the main questions we get um, when, and like I said, we've only been doing this for two years. Um, is about getting bit. So I do, I feel like it'd be crazy not to talk a little bit like it. Have you been bit or been with somebody that's been in that um, circumstance? Um, if you don't want to talk about it, it'll knock on wood or something. Here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, none of our guys have ever gotten bit. Um, and I've never, I, I have been around somebody. It was one of the uh, guys at the Cinema Honing uh, Snake Club when they were doing the hunt was showing off some snakes i just happened to be turned and looking the wrong way at the wrong time because i i just turned away i looked back and my buddy just tapped me on my shoulder and he's just walking away and i said what happened because he just got nailed in the hand <laughs> and i could only see what had happened um and then you know they closed doors you didn't see anything else yeah. but um but we have always talked about you know what do we do um you know Keep, keeping your heart rate down is the number one thing, is being mentally prepared for your your heart rate and not to be overworked. And, you know, if you don't go into it not understanding how you have to have your heart rate down, then you're just going to panic because you're going to go, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And so the first thing is, is uh, we make judgment calls on how far back we're going to go. Um, there are now with technology times that you can be in the so far in the middle of nowhere and still get service. Yeah. Um, sometimes we'll even talk about it with some of the guys, some of the bigger guys, um, that, you know, if they get bit, you know, they're going to be dead by the time they get out and there's not enough guys to carry them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it's like, Okay, the big guys, they can carry us little guys, or, or us lightweight guys out of the yeah. woods. And it's not the other way around with the bigger guys. So, um, And it's just taking precautions. I mean, I keep a little snake bite kit that you buy at Walmart. I've always had it in my pack. That whether, Is that going to save your life compared to anything else? Probably not. It's not going to be the deciding factor. The deciding factor is going to be how you react to the bite and how far, how much you have to work to get out to get back to where you can either get, you know, service or how long it's going to take you to get to an ambulance that they can at least get you to 
get into a helicopter because it's almost an automatic light flight, you know. Yeah, for sure. If you and, do get bit. Yeah, so. and we've noticed, you know, we haven't, I'm sure we haven't handled anywhere near the number of snakes you have, but in the couple years we've been doing it, we've noticed that rattlesnakes kind of have a bad reputation. We've never had an aggressive one. They always kind of want to shy away. Like, it's it's a task to get them to strike at you or the tube when you're trying to tube them, and you would think that, you know, putting that tube right in their face, bouncing it off of their mouth, they would be striking all day long, but we've never really had a snake that was overly aggressive, so I don't know if that's just our inexperience showing there or if they really are a very docile reptile. They, uh, I would say they are very, they, they would be very docile. Um, now, you can pick them up maybe at the wrong time. You know what I'm saying? It, they're almost like people. Yeah. Not every snake acts the same way. Yeah, definitely. Um, just like in um, the video, the first video I posted so far in 2020, we found a yellow face. Not more than 200 yards, we found a black face. Almost in the same setting, same area. And that yellow face was more in the shade a little bit and more in the, in the grass. And he was, like, l- more uh, spread out. He wasn't coiled up. So he may have been going here or there. He was already on the move. And he never struck at us at one time. Then we go a little later. We find a big black face. It's coiled up, laying in the sun by a rock. And when I got close to it, I mean, it was ready to go under a rock. And I just got it in time. And it struck at me like two or three times. Mm-hmm. And it never did that the rest of the time. But we think after looking at the footage and talking about it, it looked like it just ate. And it didn't look like a female. It just looked like it had something big, like a squirrel or something, in its stomach. And it was just sitting there digesting its food. And it did not want messed with, you know. So you think about it, like you don't want to be handled and picked up and playing around right after you ate. Uh, you know, and so every snake is sort of a little different, but we've never had anything that's out there trying to strike at you. If, if you if you have a snake that most of the time, if they're striking at you, um, it's either you're touching them too, too, you're gripping them too hard with the tongs or you're grabbing them in the wrong section of the body. That's a, That's another thing. Another thing is sometimes maybe, if, you know, you have your hand down closer to your tongs when you're carrying it, you have it because they're, they, they're seeking the heat. And I've yeah. had a lot of them, you know, hold them with the tongs, and they just, it's like as soon as they turn their head and they see the, that, uh, the tong tube, they're just striking at it, and they can't bite it. They're just shooting venom all over the bottom of it. And the only thing I could think of is those times, you know, it's like they must have been warm that they thought it was somebody, you know, something worth striking at to hurt something you know and here it's just metal because they don't know the difference so um yeah i i would say the most of the time if you handle them with ease and not real rough um if if they do strike it's only going to be a few times i've never seen anything that just constantly you know trying to nail you no matter what because in the end they don't actually want to use their venom and a lot of times if they do bite they could just be dry bites you know they won't inject the venom because that venom takes a long time to to generate in their body and they use that to help digest their food so they they need that more for survival and and so they use it very sparingly if they actually need to 
it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, when they're most aggressive, like right after they eat, um, because I would say probably we've handled upwards of 40, some snakes in the last year and a half of hunting. Um, and the most aggressive one was actually, uh, one I, my, my snake that I kept last year. Um, and I actually took him to, there's a guy local to us that does freeze drying. Um, and he doesn't have a whole lot of experience with reptiles, but, um, I took mine to him cause he had done a few and actually did a snake years ago for somebody. Um, and we found out through doing the freeze drying that there was actually, um, a small mammal in its digestive system. Um, just, it took way longer to do the freeze drying, but we had found out that the reason it was like, well, now putting this together with you, um, it was definitely a lot more aggressive than the other snakes. And it was because there was something in its, uh, digestive hmm. tract. Yeah, that, that just makes sense. I'm just, I'm not saying that's set in stone, but that's just from what I've experienced. Yeah, and it definitely yep. makes sense. Like you said before, yeah, you don't want to get bugged Well, right after you ate. You know, you had Thanksgiving dinner. You just want to lay on the couch and relax. You know, that snake just ate a squirrel. It doesn't want to get bugged. It just wants to lay in the sun and cool down. Well, we yeah. used to have that pet snake, and there was, I mean, you could hold him. He was the calmest pet you could ever ask for. But right before he shed and right after he ate, you didn't want to mess with him because he was just super grumpy, super cranky. Mm-hmm. And yep. I'm sure, I mean, he was a ball python, but I'm sure it's, you know, the same with yeah. all snakes. That Tell you yep. what, all this uh, talk of eating's making me hungry, about ready for a smoke break. I could get down on a smoke break. <laughs> so, John, since you're our guest, uh, you want to take us away on a smoke break, give us a... Uh, little wild game recipe of your own yeah um so with rattlesnakes um now i've never personally smoked a rattlesnake i i gave part of a rattlesnake to my cousin one time and he put it in the smoker and i just never thought about smoking rattlesnake hmm. and it didn't turn out too bad now what he did was he soaked it in milk for a short while and then he put it in an Italian dressing marinade and soak the snake in that for, I think, 20, 24 hours or so. And then he put it in the smoker. And it was actually pretty good. I mean, that's one of the best, uh, or the probably best smoked rattlesnake recipe that I know of because that's the only one I've ever actually tasted. (laughs) And I was very skeptical at it, but it didn't taste that bad. But... The best recipe that we use for rattlesnakes is just egg, cracker, crumb, and fried in some peanut oil and until it's lightly gold brown. The best, we use uh, rich crackers, cr- crumble them up, uh, get some eggs, you know, and we cut the snake into maybe two-inch lengths every two inches or so, um, two or three inches. And there's so much meat in a snake. It's amazing how one snake, legal snake, can feed a lot of people. And it's just like eating a very bony chicken wing. There's so many different parts. And after you, it takes a little while to eat the first one. After you get the second piece, you can zip right through it. Uh, but we figured just out. Clean, yeah. <laughs> clean the snake off real good. Um, there's no marinade or anything like that. Just dip it in egg, then roll it in some rich crackers, throw it in, you know, skillet with some peanut oil and get to it's lightly golden brown and there you go it sounds pretty good i tell you that um do you have so with i mean i'm gonna correlate reptiles back to mammals here um when you're 
uh, with like, do you have to worry about the spinal fluid? Like I know you're doing like venison or something when you're cutting through it like that. So when you're cutting them in like two inch sections like that, is there any precautions you have to take to that? Or is it, you know, the whole part of your cleaning process probably covers that up? Yeah. Um, I've, we, there's nothing there that I know of. We've just cut them right in sections and, um, you know, other than just washing them off a good bit right before we go to, um, you know, dry them off, you know, rinse them off with water one last time, pat them dry with a paper towel. That's all the more we've ever done. Gotcha. Um, yep. Yeah, so we've only kept, I think, like two snakes between the guys sitting at the table here. Um, and I took mine to a freeze dryer, so we weren't able to eat it. Um, and then um, my uncle was, he kept his snake last year um, and he froze it to uh, dispatch it. I don't know. That's something I want to talk to you about here in a second about how you go about that. Um, But when he went to skin it out, the meat had kind of turned to mush, uh, kind of discolored. Um, We were kind of afraid to eat it. um, So we weren't able Hmm. to. Um, But I guess because I said that, I was going to wait till later, but since we're here, um, how do you go about dispatching your snakes once you're, you've found a legal snake that you are going to keep? Right. Um, well, number one, I will say this. You, it is illegal to dispatch a rattlesnake with a firearm. So I know it's your snake. You tagged it. You can, you can do almost anything, but you cannot kill it with a gun legally. You cannot shoot it to kill it that way. So what we do, and since a lot of the times, you know, we're not, don't have, you know, uh, access to a freezer or anything like that to freeze them. I've heard guys doing it that way. Um, I just put my snake boots on, I get my tongs, and I get the snake calm. I hang around the snake a little while, and then I'll get the boot, and I'll get my boot close to it. It's not striking my boot or anything because it's just used to me. And I'll just hover my boot above the head and then just quickly clamp down on the head, and I'll have a really, really sharp knife. And I will make sure before I get my hand down there that I have the whole head and it's not going anywhere. Give it a couple seconds. And and then I get right behind the head and I just dig my knife through the snake into the ground and cut the head right off. That seems like a pretty quick and humane way to do it, for sure. Yep. And then as soon as that's done, the head is so smashed and squished from me stepping on it. But this, the immediate thing that you want to do before you even touch the body of the snake pick the snake's head up with tongs and it's best if unless you're completely in the middle of the wild um we bury the head and dig a small hole bury the head cover it up and that way you know nobody's dog or something is going around you know and finds it and brings it back or whatever like that uh because you know, that venom's still there. It can still get you. Um, and you don't have to, you know, and that's the thing. I, I know some people, they want to try, they don't like to cut the head off because they lose too much of the hide. Um, but you don't want to get right there where the venom sack is. I mean, leave an inch or so of the, the neck attached to that head to make sure that, you know, usually you don't want part of the head sticking out from under your boot. You don't want to see any of the venom sack. You don't want to see, you just want to see just neck sticking out of your boot. And, and cause you know, you don't want to be cut right there in the back of the head and cut through the, the venom sacks and it squirts all under your hand or whatever, yeah. which, you know, it's not going to do 
really anything, you just hurry up, wash your hands off. You don't want it going into your bloodstream is the thing. You know, you don't want any cuts or anything on your, your hands. It's just safer that way. So uh, that's how we've always done it. Um, and then as soon as we're doing that, we just hold the snake upside down. It'll just uh, bleed out. As soon as it's done bleeding out, uh, then we go immediately into the um, skinning process and then going into the flushing process, and then we'll actually put the meat in the freezer uh, right after that. And then it'll be ready for whenever anybody's ready to cut it up and cook it, thaw it out. Nice. I'm wondering, did your, I think now I'm starting to think back, um, did your dad put his in water or was it just frozen? No, he just put it in the freezer. We brought it home after we were hunting that day. You know, we had it in a pillowcase and we just put it in the freezer and left it in there for, uh, you know, I think it was like two weeks we left it in there. And actually when uh, we put it in, we left for Alaska right after he put it in. So my mom pulled it back out and uh, she was the one that said like the, cause we didn't uh, gut it beforehand, obviously, cause it was still alive. So all yeah. of its entrails and everything were inside of it for that whole time, which, you know, you would think since it was frozen, it wouldn't really do too much, but, uh, you know, it kind of messed with the meat, I guess. So like, I didn't see it firsthand, but I guess it turned the meat a little bit and, you know, we figured, you know, we're going to catch more of these. We might as well not risk getting sick over, you know, one rattlesnake. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've never had experience with any other, you know, things like that with um, issues with the meat or issues with, you know, freezing them or anything like that. Because I'm, I just, we've all done it the same way. We just get our snake proof boots on, step on the head, cut the head off, throw the head away, and then we do the skinning and the gutting immediately. Just. That's how we've always done it, so I'd never change that. So, like, the guys that will keep a snake, um, especially if it's not ready, because most of the time they, they need to shed, so we'll keep them alive. We'll make a cage, and then we'll keep them alive for mm-hmm. a week or so till they shed. Yeah. And it's usually, um, you know, when the guys are ready, because usually we'll do it as a group or something, um, they'll say, okay, this snake is ready. Um because we're not going to, because when we kill it, we're going to immediately skin it, flesh it, and clean the meat off, put it in the freezer. Yeah. And so you want to try to do that all at one time. Now, I will say we have had snakes that have bit themselves during the catch. Really? And we always wondered, you know, what happens if you have a snake visibly bite itself? Um, and we've read, and we actually ate a snake when we first started that actually bit itself. And we read that as long as you cook the meat thoroughly through, um, it's okay. And we ate the snake, nobody got sick. Would I recommend that to anybody else? Uh, I would say that's all up to you. (laughs) It's not recommended. (laughs) We all took a chance at it, and uh, we we were all fine. But I'm not going to say that that is... uh, that is set in stone, yeah. so that's all up to the individual, and yeah. you know whether uh, we don't know whether it was a wet bite or dry bite. I don't know. I mean, so but mm-hmm. um, I can't really. I'm not really an expert in that, so it's all take risk on that. Yeah, that's actually the first time I've. We, so we did a little bit of research on how to do it. Um, like once we got a snake, um, and the two main ways we learn, are we're reading about were freeze drying, and then I'm sure you're 
you've probably heard of the like the towel whip method. I don't know if that's yeah, probably not. Yeah, I've and seen the towel whip method. Yep. I none of us had the stones to try that. Um, <laughs> and so we, we talked about it at camp last weekend, and then we're all the same way. And so like, nah, nobody has the. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, so I guess that was like I said, the, the, you just talking about the way you're doing it was the first time I had heard or anything about that way, and it sounds to me like the safest and quickest way to end it versus like a snake. Like they they say at least a week in a freezer um, if you're going to do it that way. Um, so it sounds like the way you're doing right. it just it ends it super quick, super humane, yep. and you can get right on with the on with your day. Now I've I've heard of people thinking about you know doing it by drowning <laughs> but here, here's the thing here's the thing with uh, with freezer drowning anything like that is because it takes such a long time to kill the snake and and we don't you may not know exactly it, they, they might die quickly but it's just like the chicken with the head cut off this the chickens run around and it's dead yeah. okay so the snake is the same way and one of the first snakes that we caught to, to skin uh we had to head off, and it was tagged, and it was in a cooler of ice water all day. Got back to camp, and somebody laid it on the sidewalk, and, and I was outside, and it was all nice and straight and stretched out. Guy goes in camp to get a knife, and and I didn't know he'd come back out. And I'm looking away. I'm just looking up in the woods in case I see some deer, and I just hear a scream. And I look over. He's looking at his arm. He has his arm out with his fist clenched, and I see this blood spot in the middle of his arm just running down. And I'm like, he just got bit. <laughs> now, I'm not even thinking, okay, because the snake doesn't have a head. And I just look at the snake, and it's like in striking position. And he's like, that thing just hit me in the arm with a bloody nub. That's insane. <laughs> that is completely gone. It was like it come back to life. It didn't rattle. Yeah. But we kept touching it, and it kept turning as if it's ready to strike. That was like four or five hours later. That's insane. I can't believe it. That was it was the creepiest yeah. thing. Now, I did make a video on how to kill gut skin, tan a snake hide, and preserve the meat, and, and all that type of stuff. And in that video, and this is on the second channel, um, now it may, may be age-restricted, uh, YouTube age restricted that video not long ago, so I don't know if anybody can just watch it unless you have a YouTube account and say that you're 18 or years or older. But it is moving the entire time that I'm, you know, cutting down through the middle to gut it. Now, a lot of people don't realize the snake is dead. I mean, yeah. the brain is not attached to the body; it's just the muscle spasms of cold-blooded animals. That's what they do. Yeah, and so. And it's kind of like the lizards that their tail falls off and it keeps wiggling around so the predator messes with its tail. I mean, the tail is not alive. It's not even attached to the animal anymore, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's sort of the same way with the snake. Yeah, we experience that. Um, we I don't know if you do much frog gigging, um, but we do that quite a bit up where we're from um, in, like, northwest PA. And we notice, like, when we're skinning out the frogs, and we, we always soak them in, like, a brine. Uh, before we eat them and you skin them out and you throw those legs in the brine and they start kicking as if they're swimming in the water. I mean, like you said, they're totally unattached, but I mean, you can freak some people out because you look in that bucket and there's a bunch of little frog legs kicking, I mean, skinless and in the salt yep. water. So, oh yeah. Yep. We had one time, we had a section of meat 
wrapped in a bowl from the first snake. We had two snakes to skin. And we had the bowl in the meat, just the meat. It's gutted. The head section's gone. The tail section's gone of the skinny parts of the, the tail and the head. And it's just a big fat part of the meat wrapped around this big bowl. And there's three of us standing around as one person's holding the snake to pull the skin off the next one. I felt something hit me in the shin. Here the meat sprang out of the bowl. You're still trying to get so, away. <laughs> yeah, that's the first time i ever seen that because usually, you know, we're not harvesting more than a couple snakes a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, it's getting down pretty low. Is what we keep anymore. But yeah, that that was a that was something else. <laughs> yeah, I noticed you you personally don't seem to keep a ton of snakes in the videos. I've seen you handle plenty of legal snakes, but it seems like in your video you talk about how it's so early in the season. You hate to put a tag on one so quick. Yeah, uh, I think my last snake I tagged was in 2015. It's the first 50 incher I ever tagged, and then. I think it was the next year I tagged a, or I, I handled a 52 incher. Me and a buddy both kind of caught it, um, and it was like after that 50 incher, it's kind of like, you know, they still get bigger than this. Yeah. And so that's where it, it's kind of. I mean, everybody's different. Somebody uh, that wants to tag a snake every year and keep the first legal snake they find, tag it. That's cool. I just got used to you know i've tagged enough snakes and when you hunt them long enough and you learn more about the snake the more you appreciate the snake the more you respect the snake and you're like wanting to help the new generation of snake hunters to come in because then you realize okay that 50 incher i realized i hunted for how many years and for the first Part of those years, I didn't do a lot of exploration. We hit a lot of the same places. Mm-hmm. Um, if we would have maybe hit a lot of different places, we probably would have found bigger snakes earlier too. But we also found some nice ones that when we first started. But when we realized that those snakes take such a long time to get that big, and it's like, okay, letting that 45-incher go um, – even though I know somebody might tag it, kind of goes back to like deer hunting. You know, do we let the little buck go because to let it get bigger, but then the neighbor might shoot it. It's the same concept with the snakes. There's more snake hunters out there than ever. Uh, that means there's more people going to be tagging snakes than ever. So that means finding those big giant snakes are going to be become a thing of the past, unless the new and upcoming generations of snake hunters over time see things the same way the older snake hunters and more experienced snake hunters now are seeing it, where it's okay to tag. We're not saying we're anti-kill, anti-tag, mm-hmm. but some of the guys now, they'll tag a snake just to show it off to people for a month or so, and they'll take it back and let it go. Mm-hmm. And in a way, they're kind of keeping that snake from being tagged by somebody else and then yeah. letting it go again. Um, they're also able to show off the trophy and then take it back to the woods. Yeah, then it gives um, somebody else the opportunity to tag yeah. that snake again next year, you know, two years, yep. three years, whenever. So, I mean, I have I've, I have a decent amount of skins, and it's like, you know what, unless I see something that what I think is a snake of a lifetime, I still don't know whether I'd tag it or not. I mean, it, it gets to the point where I... I have already handled the biggest snake. 
Uh, and same way with my buddy at the time, and we let them, we let the let the snake go. But that doesn't mean that we are still not willing to tag a snake. We'll still tag a snake if it's, you know, if it just strikes us the right way or if mm-hmm. it's just a certain size. You know, sometimes guys joke, I'm not tagging another snake till you find one at 60 inches. Well, you might not ever find one at 60 inches. Yeah, so, exactly. You know, t- something like that. Mm-hmm. But I know guys that are still finding snakes, like I said, that are the biggest snakes they've ever seen in their life. They've been doing it for years. And they still like, you know what? I'm not tagging this one out because it just—it's almost too big to even tag. And it's just—it's just a. I guess you only—you're only, only going to get that when you study and appreciate and respect the snake so much that you get to a point like that. Yeah, and I'm glad that you kind of compared it to like whitetail hunting. You know, people, you said you know people kill so many bucks, and after a while, you know, you kind of you wait out for your your next biggest buck, or you know, even if you see your next biggest buck, you're still like, uh, you know what? I'm, I'm really looking for something special and. You know, my first year snake hunting was last year, and I caught a 45-inch snake, so it was legal. It was the first legal snake I'd ever caught, and, you know, it was still, I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to let this go. You know, it wasn't exactly what I wanted, and I think a lot of that comes from, like you said, with whitetail. You know, I've killed some nice whitetails, and I've kind of been in that aspect of letting a trophy go, so I kind of related back to that knowledge and prior experience for letting that snake go. So even though it was, you know, a great snake, it was an awesome experience, I still let it go because I got the experience out of it and I didn't really need to show the trophy off like you were saying some people do. And Nick even let a nice 45-inch snake go this year. It was the first snake we caught of the year. Yeah, it was wow. just I caught yeah. one. I kept one last year that was uh live weight like in the or live length, sorry, not weight. Uh in the tube was 48 and a half. Um, so I, 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 kept that one. Uh, I was pretty proud of that. Um, yeah. Really nice black phase. Um, but this year, like I said, Frank's the first snake I caught this year was 45 and, uh, 45 inches. I think it had seven rattles. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just, it was another black phase and I'd kind of set a bar for myself that it just, it didn't line up with it. And I was just as happy to take a quick picture and put him back on the rock. He was basking in. So, um, yeah. That's right. Yeah, and and the the more important thing that I'm that I'm coming to the conclusion now that is more important for the future of seeing bigger snakes is not necessarily um, trying to promote people to let them go when they catch one. Like, oh, shame on you for tagging a snake. It's not you know it's only a forty two incher. That should not be going on. But what should be going on is those experienced snake hunters should, instead of getting down at people and trying to, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the elite deer hunters getting down on the people who shoot a smaller buck than what they would normally shoot. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't be doing that. What we should be doing is coming alongside those people that are new and showing how to safely handle the snakes in order not to injure the snakes so that those ones that they do let go that are like, 40 inches and they're mm-hmm. not legal they're not crushing the head crushing the, the 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 ribs or internals of the snake and letting it go thinking that snake wiggles its way away completely fine it's not like you see a snake limping yeah that's you know point. and so it wiggles away fine and they don't realize that in a month that snake's going to be dead because it's not going to be able to open its mouth to eat or something happened in its head, and it's just going to – because they can live a long time without any food, 
and until they just die because they can't eat anything. So mm-hmm. uh, there, there should be, um, because when I first started hunting, you got the regulations and the ethics papers in the mail with your license. Ever since they went to the over-counter um, license sales, they don't give you a hunting ethics papers anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just like when you buy your deer hunting license, they give you the book with the regulations and the hunter's ethics. Well, they're not doing that anymore with the snake license ever since they went over the counter. And that is a very, very big problem. I, I, I still don't understand. It, I'm afraid to say that it really sounds like it's money-driven in order to do it that way, make it yeah. easier, more people are going to buy, buy license. But the problem is you have a lot of – you're going to have more uneducated people now. Yeah, yeah like you said, from a money don't know standpoint. don't how to safely handle a snake. Yeah, from a money standpoint, the state's like, okay, we just want people to buy licenses. But from a conservation standpoint, you and me and everybody else, you know, we're like, well, you should kind of really keep doing this because we want to continue to do this for years to come. Well, and I even right. noticed. You can go get a snake license if you just know, oh, I, oh, I can go get a rouse. How are you going to know that it has to be a certain length? How are you going to know anything, you know? Yeah. How I, to do anything, what to do, because – I mean, there is some guidance with those papers, uh, and so you have people that are are um, mishandling the snake using. Now, that comes into an issue with tongs or hooks. Um, there are tongs that have more of a, a sharper edge to them than other tongs, and we got to always remember that tongs don't hurt the snakes the same way pencils don't misspell words. Okay. So Mm -hmm. it's the handler who is hurting the snake, not the tong. Now we can eliminate user error by getting different tongs, but that's not going to eliminate the person from being able to handle snakes better. Yeah. You still have to know what you're doing in their hands or put a snake hook in their hand. Maybe if instead of using the hook, they use the hook as the pointy end and drag it, dig it into the scales and pull the snake out that way. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's all on the user. So I know guys, especially with guys in my group that have those tongs, um, usually people buy those tongs because they're cheaper and easier to get. Um, they wrap them with tape. That's and exactly take what we that, do. Yeah, we do um, the same thing. Sharp stuff. I know guys that have cut snakes, um, not intentionally, but, you know, you can ruin a hide. If anything else, you, yeah. if you catch a really nice snake and you're holding it with one of those sharper tongs, you could cut a snake's hide and there goes your beautiful snake tan. Um, but, again, making sure that we're not handling the snake close to the head, not close to the tail. And when we do have it in the body, uh, we have to use, you know, a little bit of discernment that, yes, you can squeeze fairly tight. They're used to going into rocks that, you know, or the the height of their head are, are smaller. And so, but it's, it's how we grip them and how tight we grip them, whether we're constantly just snapping them real hard. Um, I know some of the smaller snakes, they really flatten themselves out. So it looks like they're being pinched really hard when they're really not. Um, so that's another thing when we see pictures and video, we're only seeing a little bit. Um, but, you know, we still have to make sure we're not handling those snakes closer to the head and closer to the tails, and more in the center of the body, and having a grip, not this death grip to keep them from not moving at all. It's just enough, even if they keep sliding out of your tongs, just keep bringing them back, bringing them back yeah. until 
they just decide, okay, I'm not running anymore. That's a, a good point because I know uh, last year we had posted some pictures uh, with some snakes, and people had made comments, you know, that we were squeezing them too tight. But if they were there, you understand that they're slithering right out of the tongs. I mean, actively while the picture's being taken. Um, it's just, yes. like you said, they flatten themselves out, so it looks like you are got this death grip, but in reality, they're pretty much just sitting on the bottom half of that tongue um, with the top is just trying to, I mean, it, they're really not clamping hard at all, but um, it's right. just the picture can be deceiving, like you said. And there's a lot of guys out there that they've never used tongs. They're the, they're the hook-only guys. Mm-hmm. And it's like the you know, you're not going to be able to explain to them <laughs> that you're not crushing the snake because yeah. they've never used tongs, or they're so anti-tong. You know, it, it's almost like if you see somebody with tongs, those people don't respect the snakes. And that's completely false. Yeah. Because you might as well just say that, you know, um, guns kill people and pencils misspell words. Yeah. Because it's not the tongs' fault. It's it's user error, and we can't always judge user error just on a photo. Now, there's some that are completely obvious, you know, if yeah. something that a tong is crushing a snake's head, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. something like that. And then we have to still also remember whether that person is already tagged out on that snake or not. Is that snake going to be released? Uh, or if they're going to tag it, you know what, That that's a different issue if it's already tagged. Yeah. It's a bigger issue if they're letting that snake go. And so we have to use a little bit of discernment when we're interacting with other snake hunters and the new and upcoming snake hunters and not get people um, so upset that they say, you know what, you know what, I'm just going to go kill all the snakes in some den because some guy just made me so mad I don't even want to do this anymore. Yeah. You know, that that's, as sad as that sounds, there's people out there like that. And we don't want anybody that's getting into the sport to go and do stuff like that. We want to come alongside them and be respectful of them. And I look back at the way when I first started hunting snakes, and I was completely an idiot. So (laughs) (laughs) I look at people the same way. I'm not saying I look at them as idiots, but I understand that when people do things for a period of time and they're they're really wanting to learn and understand things, over time they they will change the way they do things. And because... I started out not having anybody show me or teach me. I learned it all on my own. I made a lot of mistakes at the beginning mm-hmm. when I first started snake hunting. But as I got older and more experienced, my handling got better. Um, my the, uh, understanding of the snakes and appreciation and respect for them was greater. And now we have the opportunity, at least if I can't come beside somebody physically, I can show them and teach them through videos uh, the best way to snake hunt and what we need to be doing and looking future because we're so fortunate in Pennsylvania. There's people out of state coming from a lot of places to Pennsylvania to, to catch rattlesnakes, and that's actually bringing people out of state into Pennsylvania because of the rattlesnake hunting, believe it or not. Uh, it's believable. I mean, I, I know I talked to a lot of people that even live here in Pennsylvania that didn't realize that we had rattlesnakes. Um, so I think I <laughs> which it's, it's baffling, um, but you don't think about it. When somebody says rattlesnake, you think it's sitting by a cactus. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So for, I think, um, just like with the rising of, uh, like the spotlight put on rattlesnake hunting, I think is bringing awareness 
uh, two snakes. Um, and one thing that I've seen uh, change over the years that we've been doing it, um, we do a lot of, uh, we, we, some of our snake hunting we do on uh, like the oil pads and stuff, um, like on those yep. trails. Um, and we noticed this year there was actually signs put out, um, like, you know, snake area, like use caution. So like mainly for like the people traveling, like in vehicles, like, you know, slow down, you know, be aware that there could be snakes alongside the road. And just, I, I think, and I don't know if it was just coincidence that we've noticed this, but it seems like it's brought more awareness to that we're in snake territory and to be cautious and mindful that they're out there. Yeah. Um, and we yeah, learned, there's, I mean, with social media, um, it has its pros and cons. Uh, people that give too much information, you can ruin a whole snake den in your best hunting spot, um, even if you don't even say where you're at, if just showing a little bit of the background. So it's always best to, to be somewhat uh, cautious of where you're at, what you're saying, how you're finding them. But the places where they are well-known, um, we see the non-snake hunters, the people who claim every, every snake, every dead snake is a, every good snake is a dead snake. Yeah. Is what it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, we need to start educating those people now. Okay, I get there's 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 times where people are you know on the very edges of snake territory where one stray snake might come in you know where kids might be playing and stuff like that. Okay, that's a different scenario. Outside of what I'm talking about is just the general people driving down the road. Oh, there's a rattlesnake. Swerve to hit it on purpose. Yeah. Okay. When they're not in danger, they just have a completely f- fear of snakes and that's that's not we can at least teach people or at least change somebody you're not going to get to everybody but at least to a small portion of people if we can let one person that would have ran over a snake decide you know what i'm just going to go around it this time Mm -hmm. because i learned too much about snakes and how important they are to the ecosystem and to just pennsylvania itself and and stuff like that that does wonders, you know, if we can keep people from running them over on the roads or killing them senselessly, um, you know, hiking or something like that. Yeah. And so that that's another thing, trying to teach that the snakes aren't, like we talked about earlier, so aggressive that they're going to chase you down and, and nail you. you know, yeah. They really just awesome. want to get away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're not, their first instinct isn't to strike you. They, at first, they're like, okay, I just need to get the hell away from this situation and I'll be good. They don't want to strike right away. Yeah. Yep. We actually, uh, yep. we ran into a biologist this year while we were out hunting. Um, and what his job was is the, uh, one of the companies, uh, in the area we had hunted, they, um, basically they hire these biologists to go scout through the woods before any roads or anything are put in. And there's, yep. they're expected to find like dens and whatnot. And then they're actually reverting the roadways around them. So basically yeah. they're there for the conservation of rattlesnakes to uh, make sure that, you know, you go, they, they don't want to disturb like den areas um, for that reason. Exactly. Um, now I know the snakes yep. tend to move in on that kind of action when you create this sunny area um, in a spot that wasn't, but they do stay away from dens, which I thought was really cool that there's, these companies are literally hiring hiring these biologists to come out and do it, um, so they're not just you know blindly eroding like a huge den um, with a bulldozer. Yeah. Um, so yep. it, it's, that was pretty cool to talk to that guy. We talked to him for quite a while. Um, he just you know we we learned a lot from him just about you know snakes and what they do for the environment and whatnot. Yeah, yep. I mean, one one thing is you know people talk about uh, 
you know, ticks. You know, snakes eat a lot of mice that have ticks. Yeah. So you want to, if you want to get down on the tick population, don't kill snakes. That's always a good argument. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody can get behind that argument. Exactly. Well, John, I, I know you had said at the beginning that you were in the middle of editing videos and stuff, so I don't want to keep you too, too long. Um, but before we, you know, let, we let you go, one thing we do with every single guest, um, I think Frank filled you in on his uh, write it in pen segment. Um, we like to throw that in at the end. And it's kind of just, you know, something that you want to give to our listeners that just something you really feel strong about, whether it's a, a life lesson or something about snakes or whatever, uh, just to leave our listeners with. Um, I would say uh, in this day of social media and everyone is able to just go out there and and start a YouTube channel and you have the way that the TV pre- presents hunting anymore, um, I think there's there, we're losing a traditional aspect and also a moral aspect where everyone's out there trying to uh, catch the biggest snake over the next person, shoot the biggest buck over the next person. Um, and I think with Rattlesnake, the way the progression of the podcast has gone tonight, where we're talking about how the safety of rattlesnake hunting, uh, the appreciation and the respect for the rattlesnakes and how to handle them and why the limits were on there and about ethics and stuff, uh, we have to take a good look in the mirror, not just with rattlesnake, but what we're doing in the deer stand, um, on the ice, ice fishing, on the boat, on open water, and just anywhere that you're at, even in work, um, and present ourselves as respectable and and, and kind um, people. We're, we're outdoorsmen, we're sportsmen, and you see a lot of backbiting and, and, and fighting anymore and trying to be better than the next person and trying to be famous and well-known when, you know, there's more important things to life than rattlesnakes. There's more important things to life than hunting. So don't get too involved in being obsessed with any one particular thing. Just learn to appreciate what you're doing in the outdoors, enjoy it, and try to share it with the next generation because there's just too much to do in life just to stick with one thing. And so I would say any of the listeners, or especially the younger listeners, um, you know, you've got your whole life in front of you, and just go out there and have fun, make memories, and share them with others, and teach others how you can also respect and enjoy the outdoors. Well said, John. Thank you. Yeah, that was a great, yep. definitely a great lesson for people to take away. So... Thanks again right. uh, for joining us. Yeah, uh, that was a no really problem. good podcast. Uh, like I said, you are an inspiration for us, uh, and I know a lot of other people as well. Um, I know you do a lot more than uh, just the snake hunting on your channel. I know I I actually really enjoy your uh, just the traditional muzzleloader films you do. I th- thought that was extremely impressive the way you're doing that by yourself, and I mean setting up the campfires and you know the old um, apparel and everything. It just it, neat spin that you don't see on anybody else's channel um oh thanks so. yeah it, it just it takes a while to get into that i'm growing into that the same way i'm growing into the rattlesnake hunting and and things change and you, you appreciate that's another thing with that type of hunting you have to know your history and then you start learning history and you appreciate 
our hunting heritage and where we came from and the modern advances and and it kind of goes into what i just said you know don't forget where you came from think back to your roots and uh you know make make it a little bit challenging you know don't make it too easy um and just go out there and have fun yeah it's definitely i like seeing pages like yours that are you're doing your own thing like you said you don't you started with copying and realized it wasn't what you wanted to do you so you started doing what you actually wanted to do and and it's paid off for you um just for i mean in educational purposes for us and and entertainment so thanks again uh for all the content you do create and for joining us on the podcast tonight welcome yep thanks Uh, yeah we'll uh let you get back to recording or i mean editing your videos and stuff and hopefully we'll talk to you soon all right sounds good yep thanks a lot for coming on john we really appreciate it yeah thank you john no problem Thanks. Yep, we'll see you later. So that was Leatherwood Outdoors, guys. Thanks a lot for tuning in. We had a lot of fun talking with him. Hopefully you guys enjoyed listening to him. and uh, Learned and, something, too. Yeah, he's definitely a real knowledgeable guy, like we said at the beginning, a real interesting guy to have on and really a knowledgeable person. Yeah, so thanks again for staying tuned on uh, 31 episodes now. Uh, you At this point, it's... Uh, Routine, you guys know what to do. Get outside.